Good evening, and welcome to episode 47 of the Political Mike podcast. What a week it's been. Fractions in the Democratic Party seem to be at a breaking point, putting President Biden's domestic agenda in jeopardy. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus have called on the Biden administration to suspend the Border Patrol agent uh, on horseback. Senate is, po is poised uh, to vote on a temporary spending bill uh, to fund the government and extend its borrowing ability. And President Biden calls for global cooperation and turns the page of American foreign policy at his first appearance as president at the UN General Assembly. So much going on, so much to talk about, so much to dive into. And at this moment, um, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce this uh, astounding panel we have tonight again. Um, gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm gonna go, go ahead and introduce uh, Mr. Daniel Chandler, uh, who is a native of Madison, Mississippi, a suburb of Jackson, the capital. Upon graduating from high school, uh, Daniel attended Oakwood University, graduating with a degree in political science with a minor in chemistry. Um, after that, he completed a non-thesis master's degree in economics, emphasizing the global market. He then went to medical school working on that and a master's in business administration. Uh, his main goal is to make a difference in any way he can. So Daniel, thanks for being back. Uh, Reynaldo Frankie Machin uh, was born and raised in Puerto Rico. He holds a BS in microbiology and a PhD in molecular biology, specialized in cancer research. Uh, as a patent agent and a 3L at Hustle um, Howard University School of Law, uh, Reynaldo has spent his legal training understanding pa uh, patents, national security implications of new technologies and other issues at the intersection of science and law. So Ray, thanks for being back. Uh, Tariq Townsend was born and raised in Southern California, uh, but had an eight year change of scenery when he moved to Alabama where he earned his bachelor's of, of, of um, arts degree, I'm sorry, bachelor's of science degree in nursing and subsequently uh, worked as a registered nurse. Uh, he currently lives and works back in Southern California. And when he's not at the hospital working, uh, you can find him at home writing and reading about jazz or out in record stores uh, rummaging for new record albums. And it, you know, it's, it, it kind of feels like um, back in college, I've got two of my old sweet mates on the panel tonight, Daniel Chandler and Tariq Townsend. Um, you know, so nostalgic, good to see you both. Um, Ismail Abraham uh, was, is a, a black American Muslim who was born and raised on the South side of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, he is a recent graduate of Howard University School of Law and is scheduled to begin practicing as an associate at a law firm in Chicago. Ismail worked for the investigator justice, sorry, the, the investor justice and education clinic uh, during his time at Howard um, Law School and the scope of his work and his new firm is centered around capital markets and finance generally. And last but certainly not least at all, uh, Mr. Nate Honoré, a really close friend of mine uh, who's a law student at Quinnipiac University School of Law, uh, currently a 3L, uh, and he has a passion for human rights. Gentlemen, so great to have you all uh, tonight. I want to open up the floor with this question, um, and it, it really pertains to um, the Biden administration's um, um, responsibility as it pertains to the, the crisis and chaos that's unfolding uh, at the southern border uh, with Haitian migrants, the surge in Haitian migrants. So we know that, uh, you know, the Department of Homeland Security uh, Secretary uh, Alejandro uh, Mayorkas told Congress on Tuesday of this week uh, that the Biden administration is aiming to relocate thousands of migrants camped along the U.S. border uh, in Del Rio, Texas, by next month's end. Um, he said that our month, I'm sorry, um, yeah, he's told Senator uh, James Langford, uh, our goal is to do so within the next 10 days or nine days. Um, and he said this in response to questioning. 
Secretary Mayorkas said that the administration is continuing to ramp up the frequency and number of his uh, of repatriation fi uh, fights for the migrants, the bulk of whom hail from Haiti. Uh, he said that DHS is also transporting them to other processing centers in order to expedite the process and get them out of the makeshift campsite uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border that has ballooned uh, in, in recent days. Um, and we've seen the images of um, patrol agents on horseback whipping uh, these Haitian migrants. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas has been uh, peppered with questions about the fast developing situation involving the, the Haitian migrants, um, as well as the Biden administration's approach to border security and legal border crossings more broadly. Um, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas um, said that, you know, this is basically Biden's fault. Um, he said that, you know, when you have um, an administration uh, that touts, you know, things to, I guess, that would be attractive to uh, immigrants from the southern border, uh, this is the consequence of of that kind of rhetoric. Um, he on Monday sent a letter to President Biden requesting an emergency declaration for the state of Texas um, as a result of the escalating crisis um, at the Texas-Mexico Texas border, specifically due to the dire, the dire situation um, in Val Verde County. And the letter explains that the federal government's failure to enforce these laws um, is actually a direct result of the administration's policies I want to get your thoughts. Um, does the Biden administration really bear responsibility for the ongoing surge of the Haitian migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border? Uh, was this crisis inevitable? Was it avoidable? Uh, I don't mind I starting off if, if you guys don't mind. Um, I don't. I don't know if if it was inevitable, just because it, it had been there before. But I think when we look at you know what. Biden ran on in order to become president and stuff like that. He set himself up to be someone who wanted to be, you know, different from the Trump administration. And that, that's that's where he I think that's where we draw the line. It's, you know, we had the, the, the child, the children in cages and and things like that. But now we have another crisis and Biden is essentially doing uh, similar things. And so he's going to face worse criticism because he said he was better than those people in and it, it just shows that he's, in fact, not better than those people. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I, I think, I think, you know, that the fact that Biden's main point in his campaign was America's back, uh, you know, human rights and and all of that, and, you know, it's 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 great. It's heartwarming, but uh, unfortunately, it's not panning out. You know, we're talking right now about immigration and the issue with with Haiti, but with Asian Haitians, I'm sorry. But uh, right now, Biden's just got so many things in terms of foreign relations. That's just, uh, you know, he pretty much has no basis to say any credible argument in favor of him right now. Um, I, I don't think it was particularly, uh, you know, avoidable, maybe because I, you know, this is something that apparently had been building up for many years um, since, you know, the, these Haitians are not coming from Haiti. They are coming from different parts of Central America, at least the bulk of them. So so it, it appears that's something that was kind of piling on. Um, but of course, Biden granting, I, I think it was uh, some sort of uh, status to, to the Haitians that were already in the country definitely helped precipitate some of that what's happening right now but it's it's i don't think it was necessarily fully avoidable but it's the fact that he ran on that campaign you know like america's back the, the human rights and everything it's just yeah that's that's what i think about it so, so, so here's the thing like the, the immigration crisis has been you know since the 1980s this has been that thing that has not been solved that both sides have come to agree that 
needs to be done. You know, we remember going back to the early days of the Trump administration, uh, there was some hope that we could get some kind of immigration deal. Uh, going back a little bit further, we had the Gang of Eight uh, with uh, Marco Rubio. Uh, we had uh, Chuck Schumer. We had, you know, folks that looked like they were coming to the table to come with to a bipartisan consensus. And, you know, it just seems like this seems to be the thing that's like Charlie Brown in the football. Uh, anytime we get some somewhere or some kind of glimmer of hope that progress could be made, uh, something seems to be taken away. Now, it's still very early in the administration. We're only in September and we've got, you know, three, three more years. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you know, the vice president has acknowledged no human beings should be treated like this. Um, and you do have Democrats uh, criticizing the administration uh, for allowing this to happen. Um, I think Tariq or Nate, you guys were going to jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, that's also kind of worth mentioning that since the beginning, this uh, immigration in general has been a uh, big uh, stumbling point for the Biden administration, especially when it comes to who he's appointed. Um, Alejandro Mayorkas even though he was uh, Deputy Homeland Security under Obama. And uh, I'm sorry, can you hear me now? All right. I, what I was saying was immigration has been a big stumbling block of this uh, administration since day one, um, when Biden uh, initially attempted to uh, halt deportations for his first 100 days and was ultimately blocked by a federal judge. And that kind of began a kind of snowballing of various immigration woes for this administration. But part of it also comes down to staffing. Um, Alejandro Mayorkas was the deputy homeland security under the Obama administration. One of his biggest... Uh, legacies he left there was the Obama administration's deportation and detention policy. Barack Obama deported more people than any president before him. Um, so, you know, as much as I want things to get better, I'm not so sure that they will, um, especially because the big solution so far from the Biden administration has not been to do anything about the agents themselves, but to ban the use of horses in border patrols. Um, and the kind of focus on legal versus illegal doesn't necessarily come into play here as when it, we're talking about asylum claims, because all you have to do to seek asylum is be present in the country as long as you're not a stowaway. It doesn't matter whether you came in through a legal or a, a lawful or unlawful point of entry, because all that matters is presence. The uh, administration is also exacerbating a crisis by sending these uh, migrants back to Haiti, where only 10% of the population is vaccinated. Um, in the past six months, the Haitian president has been assassinated and the country suffered a, a massive earthquake. So we're sending people back to political unrest, people who are uh, still reeling from a natural disaster 10 years ago that are now dealing from a natural disaster two months ago. Um, now, as far as uh, whether or not the crisis is avoidable is a different subject altogether. I think at some point, uh, uh, past U.S. meddling in Haiti led to a bubbling over, and this is who it happened to bubble over on. But what's well, since we're at this problem now, the question is the solution and whether or not Biden is able to offer that. Um, all great things. I uh, also just want to say real quick that, uh, Michael, your taste of music is impeccable. Your opening uh, uh, shots, the different little things you use for your promos, just chef's kiss. Um, to take it back to be more serious, uh, you know, one thing that, and I've felt this way for many years, 
uh, when it comes to politics. And that is that I think people like to place blame in the wrong areas. So when it pertaining to this specific issue, I don't believe that this is President Biden's fault, the whole uh, issue at the border. Uh, I don't believe it's his fault. It, I don't really think it could be his fault. Uh, you know, like uh, Nathaniel said, uh, or Nathan said earlier, uh, Haiti has been going through a lot of turmoil and issues for well over a decade now. There was the first big earthquake that hit them, what, 10 some years ago, uh, which, you know, there was already issues going on in that country um, already. And then that earthquake just made it worse. And then it was starting to get back on his feet a little bit. And then their president was assassinated. And then it seems like barely a month or two later, you have another earthquake. So there's a lot of things going on over there that are obviously beyond anybody's control, uh, especially America's control. So to have all that happen and America sitting over here, the alleged beacon of uh, light, beacon of hope, uh, you know, bring me your tired, all of that. Haitians want to come over here. They do seeking asylum. And again, like Nathan pointed out, all you have to do to seek asylum is be here. It doesn't matter how you get here. You just have to be here. So they try and pour through. That's not his fault. That's really America doing what it's on paper supposed to do, which is help people out. Now, the way that it was handled, again, I don't know if, if that's completely President Biden's fault. I mean, that's Texas. And as we know, Texas is a very different place than Washington, D.C. You know, the border, control, uh, border patrol... That's their own thing. They got issues going on over there. So just, I don't know if we can, I don't think it's fair to place the blame on Biden's administration. And I, I like that point that you brought out, Tariq, because, you know, a lot of what's being forgotten here is the distinction between state and federal um, authority as it pertains to immigration. And, and we do have DHS. We do have, you know, the but, you know, at the end of the day, criticism is going to fall um, at the where you know at the last buck, and that stops at the DHS office. But we also know that you know Texas. To your point, Greg Abbott actually campaigned on you know imposing more stringent uh, immigration policies. Um, he actually, when you go back to actually what he proposed, you know, as a candidate, um, you know, he well, first of all, let's look at his record. You know, he made border security funding a priority for the first and second special legislative sessions. Uh, he launched Operation Lone Star uh, in early March to help secure the border and combat the smuggling of people and drugs in Texas. Um, he he expanded expanded the mission uh, shortly after its launch to include anti-human trafficking efforts. Um, he also uh, wanted to allocate funding towards a border wall. I wonder where that idea came from. Um, so, you know, to your point, you do have a distinction between federal and state authority here. Um, and, and in terms of who's to share in the blame, um, I think Daniel or Ismail, one of you was going to jump in. Um, yeah, I just wanted to jump in really quickly and just um, state the obvious, or at least it obvious in my mind is that some of the blame has to, of course, be on the federal government when it comes to protecting the borders, because that's one of the, you know, the things that the federal government is charged to do, not not any single state. So they have to, you know, always make sure they're 
fulfilling the end of that obligation and they and, and they have to be given the latitude to, to, to do so so but i also very much like Tariq's point of not of just seeing politics so routinely place blame where it's easy and not, maybe not where it's warranted and i've been on a big kick lately just to really challenge vote individual voters to if you don't like something it's time for voting because in the, the day voters are the the final check and balance in our system too many times we think the system is supposed to check itself and not realizing that the voters are the one that checked the entire system so i just wanted to check in with that yeah and, and look th this is a, a complicated problem that has you know metastasized into what we experienced today those images i mean People have made a lot of connotations, and rightly so, in my view, of of how, you know, of slavery. I mean, you have people on horseback whipping uh, African Americans, and, and you know, I heard the, the criticism. Look, people are actually being more hospitable uh, to Afghan refugees than Haitian refugees in this respect. And I've seen, you know, people sharing those things, and of course, the the connotations between those two groups of people are different in this respect, but. Um, you know, before we pivot away, I mean, is the governor, because the governor plays blame at the federal government. And so this is your failure to enforce immigration laws and it's failure to halt illegal crossings. Uh, we've talked about, you know, Greg Abbott's record in terms of immigration policies. Um, you know, who is primarily at blame here? I know we're still early in the administration, but at the same time, uh, um, you know, the buck stops somewhere in terms of, you know, what went wrong, who was responsible for uh, going this way. Um, any thoughts? I just, sorry, if, if I if I may, just really quickly, just want to jump in on the idea of the comparison between Afghan refugees and the treatment of the Haitian refugees. For me, I just, when I immediately, when I saw that narrative, and I didn't think it was going to be, I, I was questioning whether it would be brought up tonight, just because I don't think it's really considered much in a maybe a more serious type of political and foreign discourse because there's, I just see it's being so meritless to try to really compare the treatment of one refugee class with another refugee class as to almost pit them against each other. Should So now we should be, you know, going through with the, I just, I didn't, I found it, I found it very distasteful if I'm being completely honest, how people want just saw that you can look at the way the Af Afghan people have been treated after having their country occupied for 20 years and having Lord knows what um, happened over that 20 years. And then to have them say, oh, look, they made 90, they made so many allotments for um, Afghan refugees to come here. What about Haiti? I just think that's such a, you know, comparison This lacks any kind of context that it should not even be made. And, and, I, and I, I hear your sentiments, but I, I did want to touch on it because a lot of people are sharing it. And Part of the mission of this platform is to debunk um, new news that's probably half-baked or ideas that may not be completely grounded in um, a complete picture. Um, and so, you know, with that being said, if there are no other thoughts uh, on the matter, um, I do want to pivot away uh, as time is going away from us uh, because there is a big showdown, it seems, as it pertains to the debt ceiling. Um, and we also see some factions of the Democratic Party um, at odds with each other, and it seems to be posing a risk to uh, the Biden administration's uh, domestic agenda. Um, we have Senator Elizabeth Warren saying, as it pertains to the debt ceiling, <clears throat> you know, she said, I do believe it's time to call the Republicans out over this. Are you kidding me? 
uh, what are we trying to raise the debt ceiling for now to cover the debts that were incurred during the Trump administration? Senator Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, says uh, Democrats want to raise the debt limit. Uh, he, well, he wants Democrats to raise the debt limit without the GOP. Um, he says, my advice to the Democratic government, the Democratic House, the Democratic Senate, uh, and the Democratic president is don't play Russian roulette with our economy. Step, step up uh, and raise the debt ceiling to cover all to cover all you have been engaged in all year long. No effort on their part to describe our position as irresponsible makes any sense because the facts are irrefu irrefutable. Now, internal at the same time, this is at the backdrop of internal uh, democratic discord uh, that seems to have wounded President Joe Biden's massive social spending plan uh, agenda, uh, raising the prospect that the package could stall out, shrink dramatically, or even fail altogether. Um, you know, there are myriad problems that have arisen uh, uh, that have risen from this. Uh, moderate Democrats such as Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema continue to be a major headache for the Democratic Party at this time. Uh, Manchin specifically said that he would like to stall uh, plans into next year. Um, you know, we, we, we have a lot going on as it pertains to the Democratic's domestic agenda. Um, and so I want to ask the question to you guys, uh, will allowing the GOP I'm sorry, will the GOP allowing the United States government to default uh, actually help Democrats' chances in the 2022 midterm in the long run? Absolutely not. Um, the whole premise of the GOP of the past you know, 40 years has been that government doesn't work, so we need to drastically shrink it. So when your premise is government doesn't work, all you have to do is make sure it doesn't work to win people over to your side to see that, in fact, government doesn't work. So now that when you uh, see that Democrats control the White House, they control the House of Representatives, they control the Senate, and they aren't able to do the things that they said they're going to do, you know, what reason do voters have for voting for Democrats? That's something that's very clear on both sides. You know, the uh, grassroots activists who worked so hard uh, this past cycle to get people registered and make sure they uh, knew where to go to vote are saying, well, what was the point of us doing all that if the party is going to let everything stall out halfway into the Senate? And the Republicans are saying, well, the Democrats control everything. Why can't they, why aren't they, you know, actually doing anything? So it's, it uh, really only helps the GOP, which is why they're able to play scorched earth like this. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I think, uh, you know, the slim majority we have in the Senate and the House, uh, I think that's just going to leave a very marked memory on voters. Uh, it, it might dissuade democrats uh from voting next term like like you were saying just you know just now so i i really just see it as something that will hurt us i think that typically the party in power when the when the economy goes south when things are going bad that's you know it, it, it just leads to the party losing right so so i think this could help see you I, I don't know like my my hopes of the democrats maintaining any control in the in, in in Congress are dwindling fast. And I, I think uh, defaulting would definitely, you know, just completely put the last nail in the coffin that one. So, so I don't know any, any other thoughts from everybody else here? Yeah, I, I have some, I, I think, um, I mean, like, you know, I think the GOP is doing exactly what they wanted to. And I think like, you know, it's, it's very easy to sit back when everybody's in trouble and just point out blame because you don't you don't have you're not in power to do anything you don't control anything so I, I definitely see the the scheme and it you know in the long run unfortunately I think it'll probably work I think uh, last time I was on the show we we had a, we had some conversation about 
getting you know the transportation infrastructure bill passed and and how Manchin and some of these other people were against it and wanting to stall it or wanting to take this and that and 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 all this kind of stuff that that's just part of the GOP agenda you know you know and that's why we had a question then the same question is now is where do some of these quote unquote moderate Democrats really lay their hats are they really Democrats or are they more you know right wing or you know more toward the right than we than they would like to admit uh, some of the things we talked about now, it's, it's just showing up as being more evident now because we had a slim majority. I don't know that we'll get Arizona back, you know, next time we do a midterm, you know, that we talked about how that was kind of a wave from, you know, Trump's issue with, you know, Dick Cheney and Dick Cheney's wife. I'm sorry, not Dick Cheney. Um, we're back. I apologize. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, but we, we we talked about how, you know, Arizona was a very special, special case. And we don't know if we're going to get that back. Um, I don't know about Georgia. Um, we don't know about some of these other states that we that we won and stuff like that. So I, I fully think that the GOP is just sitting back like, you know, they default. Let's that's 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 the next running narrative. That's how they approach the rest of the, the minority to try and pull some minority vote away or try to, you know, dissuade people from even voting to begin with. So. You know, that that's that's those are my thoughts on it. I, I, I'm going to disagree a little bit, guys. I, I I do think that this will you know, I don't think the GOP walks away scotch free if the if the U.S. defaults. And, and I think it's a matter of messaging. The Republicans are better messengers to me, way better messengers. Um, they hammer down these liners um, so that even the common folks who, you know, probably only have Fox News and, and a few other local channels can rattle off the same talking points that the people behind the podium uh, in a Senate briefing room are saying. So I think that it's a matter of the Democrats framing this argument and saying, look, we're trying to get things done. We have an infrastructure bill. We're ready to go. We, you know, we, we came off this summer with on a high in terms of bipartisanship and everyone was feeling good and everyone was coming together. And, you know, the polling numbers for this bill was there, you know, they were high and, you know, if they say, look, we're trying to get things done and these folks are obstructing us and getting us in the way we need a, a real majority. I mean, a lot of times, you know, folks come on this show and they're like, oh, we don't have a real majority. We can't do anything here. The Democrats don't have the power. Look, if we argue and say this happened because we barely have a majority, we need a real majority so that we can, you know, really give you some concrete changes. I, I think that may resonate with some folks. Tariq? Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't really think I uh, agree fully with what you said there. I, you know, Again, maybe I just have a very simplistic view on uh, and uh, naive view on how politics should work because uh, a majority is a majority, no matter how slim it is. And if you have a majority or, you know, you just need one vote from uh, Kamala to, uh, you know, get something through, then ultimately you have a majority and you should be able to do what you need to do or want to do. And the thing that I don't like about the democratic party is they tried to do this whole respectability thing where we are the adults, we're the grownups and we like to do things and let us you know, sing Kumbaya. And that doesn't work. That's not the kind of political landscape that we are in right now. Uh, and if anything, that should be well known after Trump's um, administration, where 
they blitzed through so many things in those years because they understood they probably wouldn't have this guy for another four years. So they got through all of their agenda, rammed through that new tax overhaul. They rammed through so many bills. They didn't care about bipartisanship. But then all of a sudden when Biden came in, they're all screaming and yelling about, let's do this bipartisan that will heal the country. Well, obviously, I don't think they truly care about healing anything. They just want their own uh, uh, agenda pushed forward. Um, I say that to say, I do not believe that people are, will buy the whole, well, we had a slim majority, so that's why this didn't get done, and let's do this. No, they have a majority. They could get these things pushed through if they want to. Drop the bipartisanship and just get stuff done. I mean, that's what the Republican Party would do. If this was on their foot, they would just try and ram everything through. And oh, well, if you know people don't like it, at least they got done what they needed to get done. Um, so I just wanted to uh, just jump in and say that it's two against four. I agree with Mike. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, um, because I definitely think the Republicans, given the market conditions, how like tenuous things have been, to for the federal government to throw this uncertainty into the market dynamic unnecessarily i don't think voters will look at least the the, the voters that are kind of maybe on the fence and make a difference the moderates they won't look at that too kindly so uh that may also uh, impact it there yeah and and you know to your point Tariq, i i hear you and I, and I think that kind of you know hail mary approach um is what they're placing their bets on this reconciliation bill for it. You know, you've heard comments by commentators saying never before has so much been attached to such a, a package before. You know, you're talking about the child, the child tax credit, you're talking about environmental reforms, you're talking about, um, you know, expansions of, me of Medicaid, Medicare, uh, you know, just a really grand overall of, of you know, not overall, uh, expansion of these domestic programs that are on the table already. But you also have uh, pieces of legislation like the immigration bill that do require a certain threshold, that do require a certain amount of Republicans to jump on board, otherwise it's gonna it's gonna tank. Um, and then you know you do have these moderates who, in my view, like Mansion and Cinema, are just trying to audition for who could be the better Republican in the, in this respect. And you know, <laughs> it kind of pivots to the next part of the, the segment um, in terms of you know the the domestic uh, programs that are being stalled as a result of um, the uncertainty that lies within the Democratic factions right now. Um, you have Representative Emanuel Cleaver of Missouri saying, if any member of Congress is not concerned that this could fall apart, they need treatment. Uh, he said, we'll pay, you know, the party, the Democratic Party will pay for this at the polls. Um, so he takes your position, Tariq. Um, you know, you have dynamics um, that Democrats essentially are looking for an internal reset um, from a months long debate over Biden's agenda that keeps publicly playing out over and over across the American uh, people's uh, TV screens. The multi-problem pileup comes at a critical point though, uh, because Biden needs a legislative win. Um, we're seeing that his approval numbers among, among the electorate are dropping. Um, a recent Gallup poll between the days of September 1st and 17th um, actually revealed, and this is following the Afghanistan withdrawal, that Biden currently stands, um, you know, at a 43% approval rating. And this, you know, is for the first time a majority of the American people are not approving of the presidency. Um, you know, he was used to sitting at around 53%. Um, 
you know, so we, we are seeing a toll taking place here. Um, so, you know, the next question I have is, you know, are moderate, moderate Democrats who question the $3.5 trillion spending package, uh, are they grandstanding here? Or are the progressive Democrats actually overreaching in this respect? The moderates are holding things up. Uh, that is my opinion. I have kind of like what I said earlier, I feel like uh, the Republican Party knows how to get things done. I'll give that to them. Uh, they will be unified on certain aspects. And that is something that the Democrats, again, with their holier than thou attitudes, can't seem to get straight. Uh, they get lost and they start doing this infighting and it's not productive. And that's what causes these tanking approval numbers because you have people on both sides of the aisle not happy because they're not getting things done. Uh, I get bipartisanship is great and I get it's wonderful, but sometimes you need to do the things that the majority of the country voted for you to do. Yeah, I, I go, oh, you were going to say something? Y yeah, I was. And I was going to say that th these people, these moderates, they don't get elected by the country. They get elected by their constituents. Joe mentioned West Virginia, um, like um, uh, Alaska, all these places where we're expecting these Democrats to be, you know, blue, like, you know, like chest beating liberals. Like, no, they're barely hanging on just because of maybe the social piece that Democrats really align with. Maybe that's it's a more progressive and modern approach that those constituents appreciate. But yet when it comes to other policies, it's just not as easy of a sale to those constituents. So I think that's why it's just not. The conversation seems to be, why don't the Democrats just do what the Republicans do like less? And for me, like a layer beyond that is because they can't because, you know, they, they just they don't have that support. They don't have the base support. Their messaging is all over because they're they got their they got one foot in the grassroots, one foot in the, you know, like I'm uh, where, where my feet is at. So I have to watch how I talk. But, you know, um, so, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, totally was going to echo that same sentiment. It, it's it's that, uh, you know, if, if they go ahead completely with these very progressive policies, they're just they're not going to be reelected. Right. And 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 I'm not trying to be a cynic here about it. It's just kind of how it is. the politicians do want to get reelected. And 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 they they need to at least I mean, you could argue it's grandstanding, I guess, in, in a way, at least just showing some effort to to say, you know what, I, I don't agree with with the bulk of the Democrats. And I'm here representing this state that's not necessarily fully blue. You could say that's them grandstanding but I, I think it's just a little bit beyond that i think that people in those states don't necessarily want to see those policies passed even though they would benefit just as much as everybody else and that's that's what's messed up about these things right they kind of hold it back and then they 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 reap the benefits of it anyway right so so it is it's it's just a terrible slow and just annoying process altogether but but i think it just goes beyond them just trying to grandstand maybe just trying to represent their people i'm just trying not to be a cynic here <laughs> well okay so to your points i guess when i say do what the republicans do what i mean by that is regardless of where you know what states the republicans are representing they for the most part have a pretty unified message you know they have a pretty unified platform of things that they want to get done um even if they might not represent a 
state that necessarily wants to go um, all the way with that. So I'm thinking of Texas, where you have people like Senator Cruz, who he had a little bit more of a threat this time being reelected. And Texas is turning blue every day with more and more people like from where I live in California moving over there. So then you would think then that he would kind of start taking a more moderate approach. But, and this is something that I've just been noticing with politics as politics gets more uh, polarized. And I'm sure you all have recognized this too, is that the more polarizing that these um, politics are getting and the more polarized the politicians get, the more energized the base gets. And to your point about representing the state where these people come from, like West Virginia, again, and I understand how politics works and voting and you have to try to appease everybody. However, if the majority of the people who voted, voted for you because of X, Y, and Z, but then you don't wanna do X and Z, because you have some other people over here, a loud minority who you know don't want you to do that, then you kind of uh, uh, alienate the people who voted for you again, which goes back to the whole Biden's uh, numbers tanking. You have Democrats and Republicans who are not happy with him, but the Democrats aren't happy. And the Democrats are the ones who, when the midterms come back around, are going to stay home because they're not seeing progress done. So that's all I'm saying. It, it's also add. Go ahead, Nick. So, uh, yeah. I'll also add that what's happening, first off, Ismail, you did warn me about this when we were both last on this program and you were completely right. So I'm going to, you know, eat crow here. But the whole deal was widely known since the bipartisan deal was announced. The, the bipartisan deal was everything that Senate Republicans wouldn't agree to in the original American Families Plan. So the bipartisan deal was Biden's way of throwing that bone to the people in his party who wanted to see certain things and were very upset to see things like a child uh, tax credit exception, child uh, financial support for child care, Medicare expansion in the full bill itself. But, you know, so like the team players, the people who ran in 2020 on being the team players of the party who were going to enthusiastically support the goals of the Biden administration are not being team players. And as to the point that these people are in, you know, places where they can't be reelected, Stephanie Murphy is in a district where she regularly gets uh, elected by uh, 10 to 15 points. And one of the people who's leading it. Uh, Tom Swazi, another, my you know congressman, is from a pretty safe district. Even if he did have a close than expected race last time around, he lives in a pretty safe district. Um, part of the appeal of the Biden uh, campaign was that Biden was the, was the negotiator of the Obama administration. That when it, that when you know push came to shove, he was the one on Capitol Hill securing uh, the deals with with the Mitch McConnells and the Ted Cruz's of Capitol Hill. And it is true that he did have these deep standing relationships, but it's also true that Biden left the Senate twelve years ago. Most of the people who are in the Senate now were not senators when Joe Biden left the Senate, so these aren't the same relationships that he was bragging about having. And this was something that I could see early on was going to be a problem. But I also kind of do blame party leadership for not speaking up more. You know, uh, there's a certain energy that the leaders, that the party's ideological leaders, Biden, Pelosi, and Schumer use when they're uh, kind of talking down progressive proposals or when they're saying things are too unrealistic, that they're just not applying to with, uh, these, with these moderates. Um, 
there's nobody speaking up. There's nobody speaking up or even pulling Joe Manchin aside to say, hey, it's this or that, you know, pick which side you want to be on. No, there's no threatening him with his uh, uh, role as uh, Senate chair. There's nobody pulling Kirsten Sinema aside and telling her that, she, that if she doesn't want to find herself on a committee that has nothing to do with Arizona, that she better get in line. You know, where is all, you know, where is all of this happening? And I'd also like to point out that the last time a bunch of Democrats staked a big revolt against the sig- what was a signature proposal from the incumbent president, most of them didn't get reelected anyway. I'm talking, of course, about the Blue Dog uh, revolt in 2010 against the Affordable Care Act. Um, there is one person, one Democrat on Capitol Hill who voted against the Affordable Care Act that's still there. So, you know, it, when they're saying, I'm not going to vote for this because Republicans aren't going to vote for me, they're not going to vote for you anyway. You need the Democrats that voted you into office to vote for you. And if you make them all stay home, you're going to lose anyway. To your point, Nate, Newsweek reported, um, you know, recently that Manchin now sits at 42% approval rating, a 42% approval rating in West Virginia. And that's compared with 37% of respondents who disapprove. Um, and this is a notable change um, for the worse because in October of last year, um, he actually was polling way ahead of 40, uh, 42%. Um, but the poll is, is coming as Democrats in the House and Senate are pushing ahead with this $3.5 trillion spending package, um, the, the infrastructure proposal specifically, I'm sorry. Um, and he indicated he will not support that amount of spending. And to your point, you know, we do see, I think Ismail raised the point earlier, you know, they're really peddling to um, what's going to get them reelected. In my view, I would rather have a real Democrat who's going to be on, you know, for these things than to have a Republican. Look at Raphael Warnock and, and Ossoff. They're voting, you know, they're, they're in line with everything the Democrats have put forward so far. You know, they have not really broke rank with party and, you know, Georgia is not a securely democratic state. I understand the demographics and everything are different than West Virginia. But in my view, look, if it costs what uh, Joe Manchin is seat, OK, we'll pick up uh, we'll pick up something in Colorado. You know, we were supposed to get not Colorado. Um, we'll pick up, for instance, uh, South Carolina. Maybe when we had Jamie Harrison. I know that was a long shot, but, you know, we, we do have other races that we can really focus and hone in our attention to and maybe get a Democrat who probably vote more in the mold of Warnock and Ossoff. Um, but I do want to ask this question, folks, because um, this is a, 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 I thought it was a really good question because it really gets at the fundamental f- difference between the two factions of the parties. Um, we have, for instance, um, we have uh, Representative Ed Case of Hawaii, um, who said that progressive threats to tank the bipartisan bill without the border spending plan is counterproductive to reconciliation. Um, on the other hand, you have uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York saying there's absolutely a level where it's not just something, where, where something is not just better than nothing, but something can actually do some, do more harm in some instances. Um, who's right in this situation? You know, is Representative Case right that progressive threats to tank the bipartisan bill without the border spending uh, component is that counterproductive to the reconciliation? Uh, I just want to say yes. And this goes back to the point when I was last on, they, they did the same thing with the infrastructure bill. Why isn't the infrastructure bill passed? It passed the, the contentious Senate like a month ago. Like, you know, like it's so, yeah, I just want to jump in and say that I'm on Ed Casey's side. Just, and because this, I feel this kind of goes to the point I was making 
the progressives, just how we're just beating up on the moderates, the progressives do their own things to set the set the Democratic Party back on its own. Yeah, someone asked the question, you know, should Biden deploy Harris to West Virginia? Uh, to, be, to be honest, and, and, I, and I say this, you know, and I said this going back to last year, Harris to me does not make or break anything. I mean, she was, she fit a lot of boxes, uh, to, you know, that people wanted to see on the ticket, but she came, she comes from California. She was in the Senate for four years. You didn't really know where to place her on the debate stage in, in terms of was she really left progressive? Was she a moderate? You know, you didn't know where to place her because she was so new. Um, so, you know, sending her to <laughs> Jim Justice's state, <laughs> I don't know if that would, you know, turn the needle or anything, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, this is an interesting, you know, dynamic, you know, unfolding. Um, and last but not least, would it be damaging? Because the thing that really got me, you know, thinking is what is Manchin hoping to, to, to get in postponing these negotiations next year? What will you get in 2022 that you're not getting now? Other than a risk of you losing, you know, members in your caucus. I mean, the longer people don't have, you know, results, the, 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 the more frustrated they get. You know, um, and, you know, to your point, you already have people who are sold on the idea. I'm voting Trump 2024 no matter what. So instead of trying to convince these folks to come on board, be, be bipartisan, just, you know, focus on what you can get done. Don't postpone any more than you have to. What, what is Manchin actually getting out here? Like, would it actually be more damaging uh, for Democrats' chances in 22 if Manchin gets his way in postponing negotiations over the infrastructure bill? I think he's playing politics, uh, to be frank, uh, which is he's an older guy from that old school way of uh, uh, politicking. And I firmly believe, because I've asked the same question myself, that he's just trying to buy time. He's trying to see, well, what's the pulse going to be like in a couple of months? Uh, you know, should I or shouldn't I be for this? I uh read an interesting article a few, maybe like a year or two ago about Manchin actually, and um, just how he's trying to be a moderate Democrat in West Virginia, which is for reasons beyond his control, the, the electorate has been changing. And especially since Trump, we forget that it is firmly in the South, uh, it's been changing. And it doesn't look like he's going to win his seat no matter what he does. Like it looks like he's, it's going down. Uh, so I firmly believe that that is why he's waiting. He just wants to try and see maybe he can eke out another win by seeing whatever is politically uh, uh, politically smart at the time. So I, I do want to pivot to, I guess, more on the world stage uh, because the United Nations met on the 67th session uh, this week, the General Assembly. Um, President Biden now made his first address before the UN uh, General Assembly as president. Um, and in this address, you know, he said, you know, this is a clear, urgent choice that, um, that, we that we face here at the dawning of what must be a decisive decade for our world. Um, he said America, but, but, but at the same time, you know, America's chaotic troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, coupled with the fact that there seems to be some tension with France now as a result of the sale of nuclear powered submarines to Australia, um, you know, makes me wonder whether or not this message really did resonate with folks. Um, and, and really, 
allow people to understand, as Biden says repeatedly, you know, America's back. Uh, what did you guys think of the address? Hollow, hollow, hollow. <laughs> like it, it was like he probably will going into that stage was like, what the heck am I going to say? Because like from all he's he's taking hits from all the fronts. And, and, and you know, you got the, the immigration crisis that we spoke a little bit ago. We got Afghanistan. We got now that craziness with France, which granted it like politically it makes sense why they did that. China has been going crazy <laughs> with with military expansion, but it's you know, making that argument. And, and that's, it's almost ironic and sad because he just ran on this platform uh, saying like America's back, America's back. I don't know if it was France or, or the ambassador or whoever who said, you know, I don't believe that anymore. Like America's back, that's just means nothing um, because at, at least foreign relations, United States is just plummeting at this point. Um, I don't know if, if since Biden's been um, president, if they gotten anything that anything positive in terms of, of foreign relations, but at least anything that's been hitting the news in the past couple of weeks or months has just been sad. So it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was just kind of a sad moment, I think, to just <laughs> listen and read part of the transcripts of what, what he said, uh, considering the craziness that just been unraveling, especially since the Afghanistan withdrawal. So I, I, yeah. But but you do have, you know, and to your, to your point, you do have a situation where he was able to say, look, we joined the Paris Climate Agreement again, right? We're on track to, we, even though the United States pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, we're working to try to get back into another deal. We're, we're back at the negotiating table. And I'm thinking of that, you know, Angela Merkel just announced this week she's stepping down. I'm thinking of that, that photo with Trump at the table. Angela Merkel's at the other side of the table. Trump has his arms crossed and she's leaned over with the other member, the other uh, heads of state. Um, as if they're trying to convince Trump to be reasonable. Um, and so I'm also reminded of a quote that Professor Preston Foster said on the show a few weeks back, and that is, you know, there's no good way, you know, to lose a war. And, and when you do lose a war, uh, and because in his view, he said America's lost the war, um, you don't get to choose the terms under which you leave. Um, I understand there were arguments that, you know, he could have done this in installments or there was some other way he could have done this, but after 20 years where the objective had been so muddled, um, I think that regardless of how, regardless of whether the withdrawal was an installment or whether we just pulled out all together like we did, or I think there was going, there was bound to be criticism, heavy criticism on whoever was going to be the commander in chief uh, responsible for the withdrawal. Um, but, you know, I think that it, it wasn't all bad, you know, you have a lot of situations, you have a lot of negotiations that people were wondering, you know, is this just, you know, the idea of the United States reducing its carbon emissions, is that just a, you know, off the table completely forever? Uh, Tariq, I think you're going to speak. Oh, I, I was, but um, the speech was definitely an ambitious proposal, but it only, he's only going to get the things he wants if he actually commits to doing them, which is to say, that to get the U.S. to do all these things doesn't just require the international role he plays as the gov as the country's, you know, chief uh, uh, representative. But also, there are diplomatic fights that what he wants to accomplish is going to require. And he, Biden has just not shown a willingness to get into those kinds of fights. You know, we can talk about his foreign policy goals all we want. But, you know, Josh Hawley has already publicly pledged to block every Biden uh state and defense nominee until he until the resignations of uh 
excuse me, uh, uh, Lloyd and uh, Blinken, you know, when you've got people willing to use whatever procedural tactics are in their back pockets, and when your party controls the actual rules of procedure and is not willing to take care of them and you're not willing to tell them to do that, and when you're not willing to even address that you have this issue going on in your backyard, what can you actually accomplish? Once again, actually, I didn't think I acknowledged it before. I 1000% agree with everything the Honorable Honoré is saying. Uh, well, you know, you, you also have, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau was reelected uh, this week. Um, his party uh, will retain, um, you know, the majority in the parliament, um, and he's going to re retain the position of prime minister. Um, so y y it's not, you know, a complete change, even though Merkel is leaving. Um, and so Biden, you know, has experience, you know, with these individuals who, who are heads of state. And, and a lot of these folks um, entered into, you know, you're talking about the JCPOA countries, you're talking about the Iran nuclear deal, like I mentioned, you're talking about the Paris Climate Accords. A lot of them, I would imagine, felt some relief uh, from the speech because coming from this kind of America first, we're going to go it our way, we're going to rip out of any kind of deal that seems to impose regulations on our country. Remember, Trump said, I'm the president of Pittsburgh, not Paris. Um, you know, it's interesting because he seems to be moving away from that America first ideology. But then you also see the America first ideology in the Afghan withdrawal. Um, and so do you think that that caused, a, I guess, a conflicted message that may have weakened, you know, America's standing as the, the, the leading nation in pursuing what Biden called peaceful resolutions to share challenges? Is that new age for war? I don't understand. I didn't get that quote. Like, what is that? That was like some, that's like some high level think tank phrasing right there. I'm assuming, you know, climate change is at the top of the list he mentioned. Um, peaceful, but yeah, but the peaceful part, like, well, wait, like, so when someone mentions being peaceful, I'm like, wait, you're thinking about violence? Like, I, I didn't know where we were discussing that. But um, no, I, I'm, yeah, it just, it honestly, it did like kind of intrigue me as to what really went behind that statement. Right. And, and, you know, the, the peaceful aspect of that, you know, I'm, I'm also um, assuming that immigration would fall under that. You know, you're talking about, you know, Angela Merkel led in Syrian refugees in 2015. The United States has been dealing with its own uh, immigration crises uh, for years on end. Um, and so, you know, being able to see a peaceful resolution to that crisis is something that um, is desirable. Um, but as it pertains to France's relations with the United States, do you guys think that the Biden administration on selling nuclear powered submarines to Australia or did it cause irreparable damage uh, to United I think you broke up a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry, my internet. Did Can you hear me now? Yep. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, I was just asking about, you know, did the United States make the right call in selling nuclear powered submarines to Australia um, or did it cause irreparable harm? Now, keep in mind, Emmanuel Macron said, you know, this was a stab in the back. Those are strong words. Um, and also, you know, United uh, France has with, with, uh, withdrew its uh, ambassador. Um, and so those are signs of a deteriorating relationship. But I want to get your guys opinions on that. I think that was a more green option. That's all I wanted to say. Sorry. Wasn't that the more green option? 
Because I, I think the 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 one that the submarine that the submarine that France was offering was was part diesel, part electric, and the one with the U.S. was all nuclear. So I think that would be a little bit more environmentally friendly. Oh, I I didn't I didn't even know about that particular detail. <laughs> Actually, that's a good point. I'm gonna look that up. No, I I think I don't I don't think it's gonna be irreparable harm, but it's forty billion dollars uh, <laughs> worth of a deal that that you know France kind of lost out on. So it's 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 pretty penny <laughs> so but but you know I, I i do understand where it's coming from the i mean the chinese government has been you know military actions there's been a lot of coercion uh some say violations of international law happening and so so i do understand the need for for wanting more uh, more of a military presence there right and 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 striking a deal with australia in that regard kind of makes sense um but i I don't think it necessarily should have been at the full expense of France. I think, you know, the diplomacy is diplomacy. I think they they will mend the relations. And I'm sure Biden is probably the administration is coming up with something other than the statement that they came out with, you know, to repair those relationships. But uh, I don't think it's irreparable, uh, but I think it could have been done better. I think that's pretty much the staple of the Biden administration from my perspective at this point. Uh, but yeah, what, what are you guys thoughts on it? I think the fact of the matter is that the, the France needs the U.S. in order to pursue its own policy goals abroad. France needs the U.S. So no, this I don't think this is uh, irreparable. But uh, another reality is that with Merkel's retirement, there is a huge vacuum in leadership of the European Union. You know, the U.K. is no longer part of the European Union. So that leaves France, countries like Spain or Italy. Um, so you know, someone has to make be the big make the big uh drastic and dramatic uh efforts to be that head especially as uh um excuse me Macron is going to be fighting his own re-election campaign soon uh against a very trump-like candidate herself so you know france does have to make these big statements but the u.s need france needs the u.s the u.s would much rather have france as an ally than as kind of a neutral party or not an ally at all so it's you know it, it it does make for nice headlines that u.s france headlines haven't been this bad since napoleon but it's going to blow away are you sure that france won't cozy up to china <laughs> it's not like the u.s is the only you know like i know we're the cutest girl on the block for now but you know like that's not the way to you know you got to show some appreciation along the way well, I mean, to Nate's point, you know, France has, you know, always been a not just a strong ally, but someone who, you know, is in a lot of our multilateral agreements um, and has, you know, been consistent in how it met its obligations under those agreements. And the United States uh, has been dependent upon France as France has been upon the United States. Um, and, you know, in this era where, you know, the democratic Western style democracies are, are seeming to try to band together to fight back this kind of wave of totalitarianism or these kind of like totalitarian style leaders. Uh, you know, you're talking about Italy, you're talking about Modi in India, you're talking about, you know, um, I think Nate mentioned Le Pen. Uh, you know, I mean, you have a lot of Trump-like candidates out there. And so if you get a, a Macron and, and a Biden together, they have more in common than Macron did in the previous administration, I would imagine, um, especially where the administration is not taking this hard line, America first, we'll just, you know, 
tear ourselves out of the agreement, irrespective of the consequences. Um, but I do, if there's no one else that wants to say anything about that matter, I do want to pivot to the last question for the night. And that is, you know, pertaining to a revelation that um, from Bob Woodward and um, Bob Costa's new book, uh, Peril, which uh, would be basically part three of Bob Woodward's uh, series on the Trump administration. He writes on every administration, but this particular revelation was that, you know, in the aftermath of the November election last year, um, you know, Trump w was just in a, a state of mind where even Kevin McCarthy said, you know, the past Trump from the past four years is not the Trump I'm seeing right now. You need to call Biden, please call him. But of course, Trump did not call Biden, and and, and Brad Parscale in July of this year actually said that, you know, if the Trump if Trump was going to run again, um, the theme of his candidacy would be revenge. Uh, um, and then you also have Steve Bannon saying we had to we have to kill the Biden presidency in the crib. Um, these are very stark statements. And, and what's also interesting is that Trump, you know, every time you know, for instance, he was in 9/11, he went to um, you know, the NYPD headquarters, I believe, or an office of the NYPD. And they, someone said, are you going to run again? And he said, um, I'll just say, you'll be very happy. I can't say anything because of campaign, campaign finance laws, but I'll just leave it at that. You'll be very happy. And he, he's been saying, you'll be very happy to a lot of people who ask him that question. And so it's becoming more and more obvious, um, that he is planning to run. Now you, you don't have a president, you know, winning two non-consecutive terms. You got to go all the way back to the 1880s to Grover Cleveland. <laughs> But I want to ask you guys, is Brad Pros is, is if Brad Parscal, who was his former campaign manager, um, if he's right and former President Trump runs in 2024 because of vengeance, will this actually resonate with the American, the majority of the American people? Keep in mind, Trump never won the majority of the public's votes to begin with. Um, what, what do you guys say? Oh, man, that's a tricky question because, you know, if you take out the pandemic from this equation, like we don't necessarily know, like Trump may have been elected again if it wasn't for like, um, you know, mail and voting and all and things like that. So if you take that out of the equation, which is kind of happening in a lot of states, they're, you know, just enacting these crazy voting, uh, you know, restrict restrictive laws. Uh, I I don't know. Like, I I don't think he would necessarily win. But I think it would be, I think it would be just dangerous. But then on the other hand, I think it would divide, further divide the Republican Party, I think. I think Trump still has a very, very strong hand in the Republican uh, Party. Um, I think it would be better for him to very openly and candidly support whoever the heck he, he is going to support uh, instead of running himself. Um, like, I hope, he, I hope he doesn't run. I hope he, he doesn't, like, I hope he... His strategy from now on is the same strategy he employed for the past couple of years, which was just craziness. And so I, I hope that it doesn't lead to anything strategic that will lead him, you know, to win or to support the Republican Party. But I, I don't know. I, I, I think I think either maybe not so much him winning, but maybe supporting a candidate would have a, a much deeper impact, I think, in them winning in the next four years so but i don't know maybe i'm just rambling <laughs> um i think it will i think whether it would resonate would depends on how insufferable the the sorry i made that may be too judgy 
because a lot of what what makes Trump resonate is, you know, the overreaching of the other side and people feeling that Trump speaks for them. I'm not making any kind of qualitative statements on that. That's just how it appears to me. So I think that his, you know, like theme of vengeance will, of course, work with his base and is going to work with the, the rest of the country to the extent that they feel the Democrats are being insufferable, are being same old like muddle mouth. So I think that, you know, it could play. But I think it depends. The Democrats have a chance to nip that in the bud. So I think it's really in their hands. Yeah, I couldn't have said that better myself. I, I really think it just kind of depends on, you know, how we do things. I think one of the reasons, like, I don't necessarily believe, you know, Trump when he says, like, oh, you'll be happy. Like, if he wanted to vocalize, you know, his campaign strategy, things that he would, I think he's waiting to see, you know, taking down notes. Like, what are the pitfalls that the Democratic Party did? Like, oh, they said they were going to do this. You know, I heard them bridges are still broken. You know, I heard I heard this is this has happened. Like, you know, stuff about cages. Oh, what about what they did? You know, because that's that's who he is. Like, he's a petty person. So I, I can't imagine him. I mean, that that's always his strategy. Like, you can't you can't teach somebody that old, you know, something new. He's going to rely on what has worked before. So he's good. He's just making a list, just making a list. He's checking in, checking in, just just waiting on the right time. And if the ties change and they're not in his favor anymore, then he'll probably be like, well, you know, you guys will be happy with who with her. Like maybe happy with my daughter because you know we've always talked about they've always hinted at his daughter, you know, aiming at some kind of political office. Who's to say she won't just run for president? We we don't really know. Um, Man, I didn't even consider like that. that. That's that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and and the thing the thing with <laughs> the thing with uh, you know Trump mulling this run um, is that we're forgetting in 2020 the thing that really motivated people to the polls. Wasn't, you know, and Biden, I think, was a, a strong candidate. I think when you look at a lot of the folks who ran on the Democratic t side, um, a lot of them actually would have, it would have, it would have been a different election if a lot of them were the nominee, to be honest. Um, but, but that aside, a lot of people just were tired of Trump. You know, they were tired of the, the, the constant being bombarded with, 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 you know, wild headlines. And then, you couple that with the pandemic that was that didn't seem it to have any end in sight. This was before we had any vaccine. You know, this is back last fall, um, and and looking like you know the federal government looked to be at odds with the CDC. You know, where you had campaign rally goers saying "fire Fauci." I mean, it was just it just seemed like the house was on fire, and you know, would the American public's attention, like memory, be so short? <laughs> you know, in four years, I think would be the big question because you know at the end of the day. You know, he, he lost both times. He did not win the majority of votes. He, he lost the GOP, the House in 2018. He lost them the Senate this last time around. So, you know, usually someone with that kind of track record, you know, the last thing on their mind would be running for president again. Um, but, you know, of course, you know, anything could happen. If, you know, 2016 taught us that. Nate? Well, 2016 also taught us that voters do have incredibly short memories. And you know, this very year teaches us that as well. The fact that in January we watched people literally break into the house screaming, hang Mike Pence, and you know, Republicans are favored to pick the chamber back up next year anyway. But it really should surprise nobody that Trump is prepping for another run. Um, I will say though that this does make life a lot harder for all the, you know, Josh Hawley's and Liz Cheney's and all the uh, other 2020 uh, the Senate, uh, the prospective Senate. candidates, 
who are thinking, you know, does Trump run, especially because if you're on the side that's close to him, you know, the Ron DeSantis or Matt Gates wing of the party, you know, you've already publicly said, I'm not going to run if, if, uh, if he runs. So, you know, if we wait all the way till, you know, later in 2023 and Trump decides after all, I'm not going to run, you know, when you're Nikki Haley or, you know, any other candidate, you've realized now that you've wasted a bunch of time waiting on him to announce when you could have been building the groundwork. And now you're, it's that much harder for you as well against what should be by then you hope is going to be a weakened uh, incumbent. But as far as him not running, I think all signs point to him running. Uh, I'm not going to cross my fingers on the uh, various investigations into him, but I will say that campaigning is hard work. Um, it's difficult and stressful work. And, you know, in 20, on, uh, you know, uh, inauguration day 2025, Trump will be 78 years old. And, you know, he, I bet that's something that's factoring. And do I, do I want to close out my 70s and be in my 80s being president again? And, and you know, to your point, Nate, you, you also have this this friction with the establishment and the and the Matt Gates and DeSantis wing that you always had. But a good indicator of who's going to prevail, I think, would be, you know, this situation with Liz Cheney. You know, George H. Um, former President George W. Bush um, is going to be now having a fundraising dinner uh, with Representative Liz Cheney, who voted for Trump to be impeached, who refused to acknowledge that, you know, Biden did not legitimately win the election. Um, you have people who are angry with her because of Trump's grievance. And, and you know, you couple that with the fact that Trump also said he's going to choose a challenger for Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has been in the Senate, I think, since 1986. Mitch McConnell's the, the the most calculating political creature that is on Capitol Hill right now. So that, I think, is going to be a showdown to see who comes out on top in that respect. Um, but if there's no, does anyone else have anything to say before we conclude? Go ahead. Yeah, you you, you mentioned that uh, Biden was a strong candidate, and I disagree. Uh, he was a very, I think, uh, I wouldn't say weak, but I feel like he was just kind of the... Uh, the candidate that everybody just kind of assumed was going to be there. And then everybody just started dropping out left and right out of de almost deference. Uh, so I don't think he's a weak, or I don't think he's a very strong candidate at all. So, uh, uh, and then I would like to think that if Trump ran for president, it would hopefully tear the Republican Party somewhat, not so much in two, but just split it a little bit more. But then I have to remember that, you know, we'd like to think that Trump got shellacked in November last year, but he really didn't. He I mean, he, he could have won and he won or he lost by a relatively small, you know, margin. Like it, it wasn't that big. So to think that, uh, you know, people were sick and tired of how things were going. Uh, I think that's a gross overstatement. I think that most people were, or many people were okay or liked what was going on. Um, and it was only, a, you know, we have to remember that tremendous uh, uh, campaign um, that the Democrat, Democratic Party launched to get people registered to vote. Uh, that massive campaign combined with the mail-in votes, which made it easier for people to vote instead of standing in lines is responsible. And if, uh, uh, like the doctor said, you know, a lot of states are kind of trying to uh, take those back, it's gonna create a perfect storm for 
Trump to win again, especially to go back to another earlier point that I said, if the Democratic Party is seen as not being very progressive or really not doing much, you know, if they're not putting a lot of these things, the country wants, like poll after poll shows, the country wants better infrastructure. The country wants uh, you know, different platforms that the Democratic Party says that they are for. You know, legalization nationally of marijuana, things like that. The, the country wants that. I don't know why the Democratic Party doesn't go and pursue those. Again, it would be politically smart because if they don't, that leaves the door open for people like Trump or DeSantis to come in and say, these people did nothing and they were here for four years and controlled everything. This is why I said Biden strong. Because, you know, and I've had this conversation. If Biden, if, say, replace Biden with someone like in the mold of Bernie Sanders, right? Could they win Maricopa County in Arizona? Yes. Or, you know, could, really? Yes. <laughs> I strongly disagree. I mean, the thing is, yeah. Bernie wasn't even polling strong among black voters. Um, and a lot of us are forgetting that because the black vote really was the determining factor, not just in the primary. Um, um, Look at Georgia. Okay. It would not have gone the way it did had it not okay. been for African-Americans in Henry County, in Clayton County, in Gwinnett. But, okay, but here, let, let's talk about, since you mentioned Arizona, because I'm actually in Arizona right now, um, visiting some family. So I drove here to Arizona. I'm in Prescott, which is an hour north of Phoenix. So uh, the the you, you say that the black vote was decisive in this election and that Bernie wouldn't have won Arizona. Can we really say that Biden won Arizona, or can we just say that Arizona did not go the direction for Trump? Uh, I don't know if we could say that it was- It's Biden. a combination. Well, sure. But, I mean, you know, the, we look at the, uh, I'm reminded of the polls and the studies that were done back in 2016 that showed, you know, in the map, hypothetical matchup of Hillary and Trump and Bernie and Trump, Bernie won by a much greater margin than Clinton did. But so Biden's not Hillary. Biden had a mess. Well, I understand that. But what I'm saying though is, is that there's a there's it's there. There's people, I think a large majority of the country, again, we just already talked about the Democratic Party's terrible with messaging. Uh terrible, terrible with messaging. And with Bernie, sure, you got the name, the socialist. Oh, everyone's scared of that. But when you start to talk about it, or you actually start to tell people in simple terms. America is already relatively socialist as it is, the Postal Service, public education, uh, social security. They'll start to realize, oh, well, maybe that's not such a bad word. So I feel like if the messaging is there, and we have to remember, Bernie also energized a lot of the younger people, that demographic that everybody wants, the young demographic. He got those. So just to put it together, I do think Bernie could have galvanized uh, um, and uh, harvested a lot of energy that uh, Biden just kind of did not have. This, this or is that he got ipso facto people hating Trump. It, it wasn't for a sincere desire for Biden. It was because they didn't like Trump. Exactly. Not just exactly. That, but but with, even with younger, and I heard, you know, there's a, a young revolution. Younger voters are very unfaithful voters. I mean, the folks, the folks who are faithful to the polls are, you know, Social Security recipients <laughs> over the age of 65. You look at the poll and you look at uh, 538, Nate Silver. You, I mean, you just go down the list and you see the demographics. You see a huge, you know, young voters are, are, are spotty at best. 
you know, you did have 2008 where they, you know, came out in a, in a large number, but even compared to other demographics in terms of how they regularly vote, that was not, you know, didn't even match up. Um, but I think, you know, the desire for all Democrats in the primary was who can beat Trump? Who can beat him? Um, and they were willing to give up a candidate. Yeah, to your point, Tariq, I, I agree. You know, we have a lot of programs that stem from socialist uh, systems. But at the end of the day, Trump had already framed the message. And the Republicans before Trump had already scared people into this frenzy of the Democrats are going to change this country into a socialist country. And and that really gripped this country like nothing else before. And so you, you can talk into your blue in the face. I mean, you can tell people, look, this is for your own good. They'll still say, look, at the end of the day, I'm voting Republican because it's, you know, that's that's like if you put a far left candidate with a far right candidate, in my view, in, this, in the United States, the far right candidate's going to win. Yeah. Well, and they're going to win because of the messaging. You mentioned that young yeah. voters are uh, uh, fickle. Well, why are they fickle? I think I think as a young person and talking to other young people and having gone to college during the uh, Obama administration uh, and the beginning of the Trump administration, the reason why young people are so fickle, fickle, is because we, young people for the most part, we want to see things get done. If we're going to vote for you, we want to see it get done. And again, goes back to what I was saying earlier. If all these people, young people, are voting blue because they want free education, college education, they want you know, legalized marijuana. They want a lot of these things. They want a train to take them from LA to New York in two hours. They want these things done. And these candidates will say all that stuff. You know, that's one of the things Bernie was voting for. Uh, uh, what's his name? Biden briefly mentioned that he would try and look at making education free in certain um, ways. And then they get into office. So we would vote for him. Like, okay, fine. You know what? We'll, we'll go with that. They get in the office, and then we have things like this going on where they're not really trying to do that. And like, I think, like the day after Biden was elected, he said, "Oh, well, actually, it's not that hard. You can't act. I can't actually just, you know, sign it like that." Everybody's like, "Well, what, what, what?" So then that turns young people off. So that I think is just when you say young people are um, inconsistent voters. We need to talk about that because it's much easier for an old person to just keep voting straight ticket, number one, because they've been doing that for 20 years. And two, because those voters or those uh, uh, politicians, Republicans, are still voting and in, in, you know, going in their best interest, or at least they think so. But that's another discussion. So, of course, they're going to stay consistent. I mean, yeah. I, I'm just saying. So it's, it, it's a little disingenuous to say that young voters are uh, fickle without actually talking about why. And you also have to consider Hispanic voters. I remember, you know, the headlines last year was that, you know, a lot of Latinos were scared of Bernie because a lot of them were fleeing socialist countries, you know, so to have the message of Bernie's a socialist, that didn't resonate well with them. And then I, someone raised the issue, someone raised the, uh, the point, you know, if you have Bernie Sanders proposing a $6 trillion budget, um, how is he going to get passed? How is he going to get that passed? Or, you know, Biden, who's a moderate, you know, who's closer to the political spectrum to mansion. If he's having a problem getting 3.5, how in the world is Bernie as president going to, you know, move this budget negotiation process along uh, to get more money than that? Oh, now, can I just, sorry, can I just hop in here real quick and say something and say, you know, two things quickly and then you guys can go back at it. Well, maybe three things, but first off the idea that um, 
with, with the Black voters point, it's well attested to that Black voters are a very pragmatic group of voters. So Black voters will vote not necessarily for their favorite candidate or the one they like the most, but the one who they think white voters will like the most. And that was kind of the whole point with Biden. Because the priority of the uh, primary was picking a candidate who could beat Trump, Every there was a lot of polling that suggested that even though Biden was the one everyone thought had the best chance of beating Trump, if most Democrats could wave a magic wand and make any of the candidates president, the ones they chose the most were uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar. Not because, but they were going with Biden because they valued beating Trump above all else. Uh, early in the primary, as Bernie was, you know, cruising to comfortable victories in New Hampshire and Nevada, that principle of okay, who will you know the others like the most is you know being challenged because we've got Bernie who's not who's building a coalition of young voters and you know Hispanic voters. Bernie was cleaning up Biden among Hispanic voters. Uh, in South, now till South Carolina, when Jim Clyburn stands up and takes his last stand in the African-American population of that state, says, okay, we'll rock with our guy Clyburn, that's what kind of shifted it and, you know, it gave the signal to others, okay, we're going with Biden. But to the other point of uh, Bernie and, and, you know, this budget, Bernie is the one who got the $3.5 trillion number in the first place. And more importantly, if we thought Bernie couldn't do it and Biden could and Biden can't, what was the point of going with Biden anyway? Well, Nate's going to have the last word. Um, I want to thank you all for tuning in and even watching us a little bit over time. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for what you each brought to the political mic. Tariq, it was a pleasure, pleasure to have you for the first time on the show. Uh, with that being said, thank you all. Please subscribe. And thank you for tuning in, tuning in to episode 47, episode 47 of the Political Mic podcast. Thank you so much.